0: Alright, zig on the top. Today on the show we have Harvey Gold, multi-instrumentalist, singer-songwriter, you might know him from a few bands, Tin Huey, The High Fives, Half Cleveland, and most recently, Golems of a Red Planet. Harvey and his band Tin Huey were one of the pioneering original rock groups based out of Akron, Ohio, sharing the scene with bands such as Chai Pig, Rubber City Rebels, and Devo, just to name a few. Also with acts from Cleveland such as Rocket from the Tombs, Mears, Electric Eels Bizarro's, and Kent acts such as the Numbers Band. Tin Huey got signed by Warner Brothers and released a record called Contents Dislodged During Shipping. Warner Brothers, not sure what to do with the creative genius and bizarre sounds of Tin Huey, shortly ended their contract. The band would continue on, fizzle out, then reunite, putting out another album called Disinformation. Throughout the conversation with Harvey, we go through that story with more detail. I want to talk a little bit more about Golems of the Red Planet, Harvey's most recent project, in which the band takes heads from John Zorn's Masada and makes them in the surf rock songs. It's really well done and really cool. We're going to listen to a track. This is the track Zism. That was the track of the band's golems of the Red Planet. You can get all the tunes on Bandcamp. Also, while you're there, you can check out Harvey's solo record, It's Messy. We talk about it quite a bit at the end of this interview. Lastly, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and any of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool guests like Harvey and sharing their insights with you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Harvey Gold. Into it. I wanted to start off about asking um, you about rags and playing organ with rags.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Well, as I described them, at one point, rags was a uh, fairly psychotic band. Um, I guess now one might call it a jam band, but it wasn't a blues-oriented or... Uh, you know, acoustic hookah or fish kind of jamming. It was pretty angular, pretty sick, pretty atonal. And uh, um, interestingly, when I joined them, I think a lot of the organ parts in the beginning sounded a lot like something, um, and it's hard to remember because it was a long time ago, but uh, I think probably something akin to the organ part that John Cale did on Sister Ray. You know, it, was, it, it was just sort of giving a, a line through while Mark would go off on some sort of really crazy Les Paul shredding from Jupiter. And uh, poor Stuart could keep drumming for however long this was going. We, we joked that Stewart actually needed a, a coffee IV when he was playing with rags. And so that was that was it. I mean, it was fairly it was really a very, very short term that I played in rags. But because of that connected up, uh, it gets mentioned because it gets connected up because it's segues right from rags into tin Healy.
0: So like with uh, you were playing organ at that time, but did you start with piano and organ?
1: I started playing piano when I was seven and just took your sort of standard issue uh, music book 101 kind of, um, piano lessons, um, for about five, six years, uh, it was when I was 12 years old, my brother came to me on my birthday and said, dad's going to be really pissed. Cause he had gone out and spent $5 on a used harmony arch top for me. And, uh, and dad was pissed. You know, he thought, well, you you and those mop tops making all that noise, you're not going to practice piano anymore. And I was like, no, Dad, really, I will. I promise. I know. And I lied. I didn't. So I, I sort of drifted away from piano until, really, until that period around rags where, because Mark's big brother, Steve, was in a band that actually did an album for United Artists called Wild Butter, um, where they practiced, where we were, um, there was, I think it was a Farfisa, yeah, sitting around. So that's where I was like, oh, Harvey, you can play organ now. So,
0: so jumping from piano to guitar, did it make sense? Because like I see piano as kind of like an overview of everything, kind of musical. Like you can really see mm-hmm. it laid out, and guitar is kind of blocked, kind of like a city. Like you, there's like little you're mo- moving these shapes to where it needs to go. Was the transition between the two easy for you, or did you find it difficult?
1: That's a real interesting way of viewing it, um, seeing things in in shapes and sort of a geometrical view of looking at it. Um, some people say that piano is the easiest instrument in the world to play a little, um, hence chopsticks. Yeah. You know. yeah, I agree with that. Um, okay. <laughs> and that it's possibly the most difficult instrument to play really, truly well, depending upon where you're setting the bar. Um, Going to guitar was, in some ways, it was easy because of what music I was trying to pretend I could play. You know, there were at least three songs that if I played two adjacent strings and just barred them going up and down the neck... I could pretend I was playing. One was Louie Louie, one was Twist and Shout, and one was Hang On Sloopy, and they were all just one, right? One yeah, four five, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um and you could do it low with the low E and the A string, and you could do it up high with the B and the E. So you could do it, you know, two different ways, and feel like you were really covering the guitar. um die that that's it i mean guitar just kind of came naturally to me um but yeah you know it was the way everybody else did then you start learning chords and then you realize that this old harmony arch top is going to make it really really hard for you to learn how to play bar chords and actually have them work because um, the action was so high but uh, uh it just and then i just kept playing guitar and um Took some classical guitar lessons, spent a little time at the university, actually as a as a classical guitar major, and uh, with my minor in piano, and then you know moved on from there, and became became a utility infielder, which is what I actually always felt like I was with Tin Huey and with half Cleveland. Okay,
0: so so like while. Wow. While going to college, and stu- was that when Rags was happening? When you were jamming with those guys, or was that before? Nah,
1: that was that was. oh boy, that's tough. Um,
0: <laughs> or vaguely,
1: <laughs> vaguely, yes, yeah. Um, you know, I I I had a cup of coffee in college, um, and so that I had I'd have to look at a calendar to figure out. When rags when I started playing with rags, when rags ended, when we started doing tin Huey, but um, it was in that period. Okay,
0: and when and when Huey started, were you were you sticking with the organ or did you switch to guitar at that point?
1: No, I was playing guitar. Okay. Um, I didn't own one. I still didn't own one. Well, I didn't own a keyboard. Um, at, at some <laughs> point, at some point, I had an apartment down by the university, and my father rented a uh, a Baldwin spinet me to play, which my roommate and I completely covered in cardboard, um, because we knew that we were going to destroy it if we didn't, and it was a rental, and my dad would kill me, so it was kind of a cute instrument, but uh, as far as uh, playing in a band with anybody, no, it, we were we were playing guitar, we were doing things like um, uh, you know, early T-Rex stuff. Uh, some early, uh, I, I actually can't remember what else we did. We were writing some songs, but the only cover stuff that I remember that kind of gave an indication of what we were doing was, was like the, the, the Rider White Swan album by T-Rex.
0: Okay. So, uh, two questions. Did the cardboard help? Did it <laughs> did it hold up? <laughs>
1: well, it, it kept us from spilling a lot of Pepsi okay. on the finish. Yeah. Yeah, it did help.
0: Smart thinking, too.
1: (laughs) It's my roommate. He was smart. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would have destroyed it and just gotten into all sorts of trouble.
0: Were bands like the Stooges and Soft Machine and Velvet Underground kind of influencing you guys as well?
1: Um, As we went along, absolutely. Um, The the Velvets had yet to release their third album, so we didn't have any, what I consider to be, Uh, Songs that we had really latched onto of a softer nature uh, with them. And when we were acoustic, it was just two acoustic guitars and Stuart was playing, uh, you know, uh, percussion and bongos and stuff. Um, I'm not even sure whether he had a a drum kit down in the basement at that point. Uh, But when we went electric, um, we definitely started moving towards that. Um, um, I was a big Stooges fan, a big Velvets fan. Um, so that stuff started to come into play along with a lot of, uh, um, European stuff, big fans of soft machine, uh, that, and that of course, soft machine and some of the velvet stuff didn't really start coming to play in earnest until I actually did get a keyboard of some sort. Um, not that I always played keys on all those songs, but uh, especially with Soft Machine, that was, which was, you know, at that point uh, in time, it was a three-piece band, which was, you know, uh, mainly organ, uh, bass, and drums. So we did a bunch of that stuff. We, we started listening to a lot of uh, bands like Faust and Amandul and uh, um, Henry Cow. Uh, you know the the kind of radical left wing of Canterbury music, you know henry cow and and uh, um slap happy art Bears uh, it got pretty weirdly eclectic, but uh the one the one artist that has stayed consistently in mine and and a couple of the guys from the Hueys, absolutely at the top of the list. Uh, throughout all these years has been Robert Wyatt, who, was, who started as drummer for Soft Machine, and then uh, Matching Mole, and, uh, and uh, then as a solo artist.
0: So how were you coming across these artists like at the beginning? Who was showing uh, uh, them? Like- <laughs> well,
1: we, we, uh, two things really happened. One is I, I had a really, really great pal who was just uh, completely immersed in musicology. And he turned me on to some stuff. He turned me on to uh, the night that I listened to the White Light, White Heat album. And it actually just sort of like changed my trajectory from that point forward. Um, and, uh, um, and then I worked at a record store called Disc Records, which was a chain, um, at Summit Mall. And it was a bunch of guys with long hair wearing ties and may or may not have been doing acid at any given moment. And it was very, very much like, i mean the atmosphere was like a sophisticated version of the record store in high fidelity, except it was in a mall and it was wearing ties. Um, We were getting lots of really interesting imports from gem, uh, uh, which meant we were also spending a lot of time with, I was at least, with um, like electric English traditional, like Fairport Convention and Steel span and the Straubs and then Father and Gay, um, and everybody who was involved in it, you know, Richard Thompson and Sandy Denny and Linda Thompson and uh, that whole gang. Um, so that was there, too. So uh, this explains why, when we talked about Tin Huey, were really kind of talking about the, the arc of my career is that if you if you are what you eat, boy, we ate a lot of different things, and it meant for some pretty eclectic song lists.
0: It got messy
1: it got messy it did
0: i mean that's
1: i mean, <laughs> I, I believe me. I came. I came to the the title of that album by listening to the tracks, putting them in some sort of uh, what I thought was a reasonable order, and thinking, you know, this is this is me. <laughs> I'm just I'm just messy.
0: But that's beautiful. There's so much from music to take from, especially when you're using it as your creative outlet, right? There's so many things sure. from so many different like styles and pieces and composers and voices and like. it it, it, to be pigeonholed is has to be a bummer (laughs) you know what i mean because there's so much beauty around
1: well i do consider it the secret to my lack of success you know (laughs) i really do i really do it's like I, i was actually thinking about this um i've been doing a project um like in the last week or so yeah where i have been uh Uh, sort of reimagining the Warner Brothers album that Tin Huey did, um, and a bunch of unreleased material um, in the studio, doing some stuff with it. And I was thinking about the song that Chris and I wrote, Pink Berets, and how (laughs) my thinking uh, was that people would buy our album because of pink berets and some sort of weird suggestion of Steely Dan. And as a result, they would then have to be stuck listening to all the twisted tunes like Puppet Wipes and Squirm You Worm. And I thought of it as being like sort of insidiously a guerrilla operation. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: Sneak attack. Uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah, of course, nobody wanted to hear pink berets. Nobody wanted to hear I'm a believer. Nobody actually wanted to hear the album, so we weren't able to poison the universe with it.
0: But I like the kind of so when you guys started writing, right? When you started writing your own songs, and th- that was before Chris joined, right?
1: Oh yeah, well we released okay. a bunch of stuff before Chris joined. Yeah, right.
0: So like leading up, I guess uh, being exposed to all this music, having all this outlet or uh, input, right? and, like, a group to put it out with, like, was it a process that came naturally? Was writing easy for you? Or was there being around all this kind of... Sometimes when you take too much in, there's kind of, like, a pressure of something to, like, live up to? Or did that... Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Did that kind of mess with... uh, Here's a song. Let's try it. Yeah, I mean, we... I don't
1: think we had any trouble writing. um, How well-developed the tunes were it can always be questioned. Um, You know, I think a lot of, a lot of everything changed just simply as we became better on our instruments. Um, I have a line that I wrote on a, on a song on our disinformation album that uh, is in the Tin Huey story part two, which uh, says uh, back in basements, sneering in Milwaukee, being weird to keep from being bad. Uh, you know, if if you did something really atonal and and strange and and uh, abrasive, um, and you did it with enough confidence and volume, because <laughs> we were really loud, to appear to be intentional, then the fact that you know I couldn't play half the things in the Mickey Baker songbook as far as chord structures, um, doesn't become part of the conversation,
0: you know. Right, right. Does well, that make sense? Yeah, no, totally, totally makes sense because it, there is something about that when you're watching like some like free jazz or something, and it's like you're like I can't comprehend this because it's so much, <laughs> it's so much more intense right. than my brain can understand, and then like exactly. maybe you're stepping back, but part of that is the attitude, right? Part of that is someone being this is what I have to say, figure it out, you know. Um sure and and
1: to to really answer your question it, it was always an interesting thing that happened with us because of who the members of the band were. um I have to say, there are times that I feel like a zealot character. People who played in Tin Huey had such interesting and extreme talents um but it also sometimes caused deficits in terms of of being able to like you know play something that would literally crack the audience's skull open, but not ever be able to remember to go back to the G chord after that. Um, sort of savant-like stuff went on in Tin Huey. So I was sort of the, the broad shoulders that a lot of it sat on. Um, and um, I guess the point is, is that we would we would have this idea like, oh, let's do this song. You know what? This, this song could sound like... Uh, uh, a lot like uh, Pick whatever you want um, uh, It could sound like I'm on Duel And then by the time We were done with it It didn't sound anything Like I'm on Duel Or like I said Something like Oh let's let's approach this Like a Steely Dan song By the time we finished it It sounded nothing like Steely Dan Because there was such Everybody was such a weirdo In this band
0: But planting the seed And having it start like that That's I mean that's, Sure Yeah yeah it, ends, it might have a little
1: stylistic moment in it, you know, yeah. something that we just are sort of like, you know, hooking on to for a second, and, and that satisfies our need to sound like Fairport Convention, but nothing we did ever sounded like Fairport Convention.
0: And I guess that's, you know, that's how you really know it's yours, you know? like I, Well, yeah, and that's how
1: you, you do get better because you pick up little things from other stuff that you've listened to, and while you're never really... Going to be able to plagiarize, you, it sends you down a path that you wouldn't have gone down otherwise. So that's always an interesting way of growing musically.
0: So, after I guess kind of being in that, when did Breakfast with the, uh, with the Hueys, when did the first like batch of tunes like come together?
1: Well, right, right around the time they were released. I'd have to look that up on a discography, but, um, you know, we, we, we had songs and then we always had some sort of a recorder around, you know, some of the stuff that, uh, was recorded on our first, uh, EP was recorded. The one that's just called Tin Huey, um, was recorded on, you know, a TAC four track. Um, some of it where we practice some of it, one of them live and, um, and some of them at a little studio down on high street in Akron that just simply had all, all the gear was attached to a four track TAC, Um, and then a little later, by the time we got to breakfast with the Hueys, Mark had, and my single experiments, Mark had, had acquired an Otari eight track. So all of a sudden we had eight tracks to work with, which was quite the wealth of tracks. <laughs> and, uh, And we were able to experiment on that.
0: So like at that, like, I guess going at one point, um, I wanted to ask, I think his name was Jim Koffner. He introduced Mm -hmm. you to, was it? That's that's who I was talking about. Okay.
1: My friend who, who introduced me to White Light, White Heat and, and a bunch of stuff because he, he had worked at Disc Records also had, and had actually gotten me a job there at that point.
0: Okay. Okay because he's got a pretty, old high school buddy. Right. But that's who that's who influences like the band, you know, that's who gets you into the things you never thought you would ever love or get into or inspired yep. by. Yep. Um,
1: yep. yep, uh, we I think we referred to him as our guru at some point, which you know, it's a pretty interesting way of putting it. It's
0: so, I mean, there's always someone like that. I mean, I haven't talked to anyone really who's mentioned like the krautrock bands like like you've mentioned so far. Um, mm. because I don't know. I don't know. It's, it, it's really, you, uh, I guess a niche rabbit hole, but that whole like experimental scene over there is really cool.
1: It's interesting. I mean, there was a period where we, uh, we would play, uh, this really, I guess I just wish we had, I, I don't know whether I actually wish we had a recording of it or not, but we were known to do, um, start out doing, uh, 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 Sunshine Girl, Rainy Day by Faust, which was, you know, a real um, patterned uh, pulsing tune. And we would do that for about 10 minutes. And then we would segue into doing, um, we did it again by Soft Machine, which was completely written and based by them on, on what effect it would have on people by being so repetitive. And so we would end up doing in front of a poor live audience, you know, 20, 25 minutes of this stuff. And, uh, um, it was kind of, uh, abusive, I think, (laughs) but you know, we, we kind of liked that, you
0: know, so. Was it where, and now like at that point, where were you guys playing?
1: Well, we had, a, we had a gig three nights a week for, for a while at JB's in Kent. Um, the story's kind of funny because the the, uh, um, the guy who ran the upstairs bar there, someone named Mike, um, was a big Grover Washington Jr. fan and if you know Grover Washington, he plays ki- played kind of soft jazz. Right. And But he was a sax player. Yeah. So when he knew that we had a sax player, he wanted to hire us. And it didn't matter that the sax player happened to be Ralph Carney and the band happened to be Tin Huey. That was the only thing he used as criteria. So uh, damn the torpedoes.
0: The saxophone music has to sound like that. What else could it be like? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. That, I don't know. That's it was that pretty funny too on his end to, to keep it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you know,
1: there wasn't a lot going on on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, in, uh in Kent, and uh, and the numbers band were usually playing downstairs to a pretty good sized audience. Um, so we would just bring in our five or ten people throughout the night and, and do whatever the hell we wanted to do, and then um, you know split the take at the door, which would leave us with probably about five bucks each, and uh, go home.
0: I understand that feeling, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. But you know those those like that opportunity in that uh, that just the platform to get on stage and figure it out you know, is, is, uh, it, it, like that, that is so valuable, like to be able well, to it was, do it.
1: was really, it was really useful. Um, first of all, you know, if, if we as musicians ended up in some sort of variation of that, you know, Beatles in Germany, 10,000 hours and suddenly you actually become a player, um, sort of theory, then that was JB's was really just like a godsend for us. Um, because there were not a lot of places to play in Akron and certainly not a lot of places to play for a band like ours. Um, so doing the JB's thing was great. Plus, uh, then Chris joined, and uh, he and I had kind of a really interesting chemistry, uh, and we just started writing and rearranging stuff and looking at our sets. And, and you know, I just really welcomed... Uh, having a little less chaos in the band. And um, um, and then, you know, we played these gigs and suddenly we're getting signed to Warner Brothers, um, which was really pretty bizarre and interesting. But we had JBs to be able to showcase. You know, we had kind of a home there. And so when Robert Kriskaw was coming in from the Village Voice, um, there was a place for him to see us and the Bizarro's play on a given night. Um, and then when Karen Berg came in uh, from Warner Brothers, there was a place for her to see. Uh, we had a home. We weren't like scraping and searching for a club where uh, she could see us and whoever played with us on those those nights. Uh, Chai Pig played one night with us, I think, and Unit 5 played another night. So, um, it was, it was, it was great having JBs in our life at that point.
0: Definitely having an HQ like that and kind of like just being able to see what other bands are doing too. Like, cause the numbers band were pretty experimental in that whole blue. I mean, they had a pocket, you know, um, in like a, a, a form like, but like, the, as far as like a standard blues band, what, what's going on there? You know?
1: No, it's, it's interesting. Um, I have two things to say about that. One, I had no idea what any other bands were doing. None. I was working, you know, there was a point where, where, uh, and it's been been, uh, resolved over the years, but there was a point where one of the members of the Rubber City Rebels in an interview uh, said something to the effect that Tin Huey were a bunch of like prog rock snobs because we didn't come down and hang out at the Crypt. And... I took, uh, issue with that because I was working 40 to 50 hours a week, had a wife and a kid, and then was playing three nights a week at a club and practicing the other night. So fuck you basically. And, and actually one night I was doing a gig. I don't remember, I think with, with, uh, with half Cleveland somewhere and buzz click from, uh, the rubber city rebels was in town and came over and said, yeah, you know, sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because you know, we were killing our, I mean, we were young, so you know, you can do anything, but, but we were, you know, certainly killing ourselves, working jobs, paying the bills, doing what we were doing in our civilian life. And then putting in all the hours we were putting in with the band, um, So I didn't hear anybody else. I mean, I'd hear Chai Pig uh, a little bit because of however I approached what was going on when a band was opening for us. Um, I'd hear Chai Pig a little bit. I'd hear the Bizarro's. Um, uh, I I remember a tiniest bit of Unit 5, although they opened for us uh, on a couple of occasions. Um, I remember... Rocket from the tombs uh because they were pals and we played with them up in cleveland uh i certainly remembered that um uh, mirrors mirrors really stuck with me i really liked jamie um and i liked his style uh but i've just kind of named all of them right now um uh i didn't really spend much time even hearing devo until both of our bands were starting to get ready to sign to warner brothers and you know, we were finding ourselves with a little more time because we were going to be getting uh, advances and we wouldn't have to work 40 hour a week day jobs for a while. So that, and I never heard the numbers bad because I heard that Bob Kidney was real mean and I was scared and I wouldn't go downstairs. I swear to god, the, I knew Dave Robinson the drummer cuz he would come up and hang out when they were on break. I've met Chris Butler because when they were out he was playing bass for him and when they were on break he'd come up and and uh, heckle me personally while I was playing. Harvey. And um <laughs> that's it. Harvey call your mother. Yep, that was him. <clears throat> and uh um that was about it and I I Kind of became truly best friends with the the Kidney Brothers and Terry, Terry Hind, um, who uh, sort of wanders into my driveway with some regularity. Um, uh, usually he'll call ahead, but when I get a call on a Saturday morning and it comes up, Terry Hind, I'm like, are you in my driveway now? because I'm in my bed. And she's like, no, no, but I was going to take a drive in the Valley. Fine. I'll see you in a half an hour, you know, but, um, just uh, the numbers band are my favorite band. I, I, when they are on, there is nothing like them. I just, that dark voodoo weirdo music. That's definitely blues based, but angry blues. I mean, I just love them.
0: I mean, I, uh, they're like diving into their music there's something that is so alluring with how they create this groove and then the narratives that are put on top of it and i saw yes. for the first time I, I got to see them which was the the new year's eve and like for listening to them forever and then getting to see it like it's still there and it still is intense like and like i don't know if robert's mad that i'm here but <laughs> I, know. Not, I know he's not he's not he's just So I believe what he says when he's saying it, like, I'm sold on it, man. Like, well,
1: he's, he's committed. He's committed to it. He's, he's a real artist. And, and as far as it goes, he he said to me, this was a while ago, he goes, you know, Harvey, people come up to me and between sets and, and, and there are times that uh, they think that I'm, I'm nasty and I'm aloof and I'm deaf and I don't hear them. And so I don't respond, and they think I'm a shit, <laughs> which I think was pretty funny. But uh, well, that's he a... is pretty deaf. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> that I did not know. All right, that would make sense. Well, I mean, you'd be around music forever. You know what I mean? Unless you're wearing earplugs, you're going to have some hearing loss, man. Um...
1: Yeah, he likes to play just about as loud as I always did. So I, I, and he's done it more than me for a longer period of time. So I, I would expect that
0: and like i've talked to a lot of people from the scene around here and like the numbers band is put on such a high pedestal for the and for for right reasons right and like it's Yeah, that's
1: cuz they're better than everybody else.
0: Right, but they're just so <laughs> they good. They're they
1: really are. They really are. I mean, the stuff that Terry and Jack do on yeah. harp and saxophone is just spectacular and and it's really, you know, deeply based on on understanding what they're doing. I mean, they they really know what they're doing. Jack was talking to me about what he does on the harp that's a little different than other people do. And um, the, the, the technical proficiency is remarkable. And then the writing and the soul and the absolute crazy combination of of emotional and physical talents that Bob has. is just um, It's just crazy. It's crazy. I was telling Terry that I want to order the piano music, knowing that, you know, I w- I'll want to kill myself, but I want to order the actual piano sheet music to uh, Giant Steps by John Coltrane and uh, have him come over and see whether we can do a duet. Uh, that would be terrifying. But, <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> We may um, do it. We that, may do it.
0: I hope you do because that'd be insane. Like it definitely is like one of those workouts as far as like trying under trying to keep up. <laughs> like, well,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the piano player on that recording was yeah. out of his mind, you know, and he wanted to like kill himself during that. So, but he did what he did, and it's been transcribed. So I want to take a uh, take a look at it.
0: And he's got, like, when you listen to that, you can hear, like, you can hear he's taking pauses to, like, figure out where to go next, you know? Like, well, I mean, how many
1: key changes are there in the first minute and a half? I mean, Jesus. I, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, if you're the piano player and you're like, I do not know which sharps and flats <laughs> are applicable at this very moment, <laughs> you know, you just don't know.
0: Oh, that's like the most... It was like
1: I was playing, uh, but I was playing Jimmy Bell's Back in Town, uh, sitting with the Numbers Band. Uh, yeah. It was the first time I sat in with him on piano. And Terry just keeps looking at me, and he keeps looking at me, keeps looking at me. And I, had, I had approached it by thinking that Jimmy Bell was sort of like the Numbers Band's version of Sister Ray. So if I was going to be playing a keyboard, I just sort of approached it that way. And uh, Terry afterwards was like, it's, it's a major key. Why were you playing a G sharp? Why were you playing a G sharp? And I was like, well, you know, I was resolving from the G sharp to the A. And he's like, no.
0: <laughs>
1: and I was like, yes. And we sort of laughed about it. And the last time I sat in with them, uh, it was a pretty hot version that came out. And yeah, you know, I've been playing a lot of piano since that first time I played with him, just in terms of frequency. And, uh, and Terry was like, "Wow, you, you you really played that well, and you didn't play a G sharp." <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: yeah, well. But, I mean, <laughs> but with 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 the with Giant Steps, that part to me is like the human uh, approachable mortal on that record that's like, okay, we can all figure this out. If that guy's struggling, okay, all right, there's some hope for the rest of us. <laughs> like,
1: exactly. I'm thinking that when I look at the music, it's going to be like vaguely simple because he was just trying somehow to, you know, be a piano very very clearly the piano being a percussion instrument kind of try to like make his way through it so it'll be
0: interesting it'll be interesting i look forward to it um thank you so so moving from that right you guys are playing and then uh chris sets up those those gigs with with and then jerry wexler shows up right and that's how the warner brothers thing comes to well yeah the
1: warner brothers thing really it started with chris gow he had uh he was doing a piece uh He was overseeing a piece for the Village Voice that was called Down in the Boonies. He sent one of his writers down to Austin because of Dwight Twilley. He sent another one to Minneapolis because of Husker Do. And he came to Kent. And that's when I met Bob. Um, And he saw us and then called and said, I never have done this before. But. I've told my friend, Karen Berg, who is A&R at Warner Brothers, about you. And she's going to get in touch, and she's going to want to see you. So then Karen got in touch, and we set up another huge gig in Kent. Um, And these were big gigs uh, where Pin Huey had often played in front of 10 or 15 or 20 people. These were JB's upstairs packed to the door, you know, really Good, big turnouts, but we had we had really pressed to get a big turnout. Um, and then Karen came, and we did our first set, and she took Chris and me aside and said, do you guys have a lawyer? And we said, why, no, we don't. Um, and she said, well, I don't normally do this, but um, I'm really good friends with David Sonnenberg, Um, and I would, if you, of course you should go with anybody you want to, but I would recommend that he would really look out for your, your best, uh, uh, um, deal. And cause Warner brother, I'm going to offer you guys a record contract. So we, uh, proceeded to go up and tell the rest of the guys in the band and then we went up and played a really, really, really out-of-control shitty second set. <laughs> and we thought, oh, my God, is, are we going to lose this chance? Because we were, like, so excited. Right. You know, we were just, like, insane. But um, And then a couple weeks later, Karen came back and brought Jerry Wexler and Michael Austin, Mo Austin's son, and uh, who was president of Warners at the time. Mo was. And, um, and Paul Wexler, um, Jerry's son, who ultimately ended up, um, producing contents dislodged, becoming a lifelong friend. And that was kind of the sequence of events. Jerry had just become, um, head of A&R for Warner Brothers New York and Warner Brothers New York had never signed a band before. It had always come out of Burbank and Tin Huey had the the good fortune and the bad fortune of being the first band signed by New York.
0: So I mean, yeah, I would I'd imagine being ecstatic after that. <laughs> like how do you go back to like just being focused for the rest of the gig? <laughs> Holy shit. No, that that's, uh, that didn't that's work. incredible.
1: <laughs> and and then, interestingly, the nicest thing that Jerry Wexler said about our band was that he was impressed by the fact that we were in tune.
0: <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean... I, I get, Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but was there any thought, like, wasn't uh, Mark, the bass player, wasn't his dad a lawyer? His dad was a judge. A judge. A judge. Okay, I got that mixed up. I was going to say, why don't you go with that guy? You knew him. <laughs> no, no. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, mm. And there was a very big difference in our perception of what a an entertainment... There were no entertainment lawyers in Akron. You know? And, uh, Sonnenberg was interesting. You know, he was the, he managed meatloaf. He was, uh, he was the, uh, uh, lawyer for Patti Smith. Um, he was the one who ended up, uh, becoming executive producer of that Muhammad Ali movie, uh, about, uh, his fight with Foreman that won the, uh, the Academy award. He was the guy who raised all the money to make it happen. So he's kind of an interesting guy. I
0: mean, I mean, that's like a whole nother realm of trying to figure out people like, it's a, we, like it's people like that who got your back your in your interest. But clearly someone who's like willing to dive into projects like that could get behind what you guys were doing.
1: Well, he did, but only to a point. We actually wanted to get him to manage us and he wouldn't do it. He just he just felt he didn't have the time. And for all I know, he may have thought these guys are really weirdos. <laughs> you know, I'll represent them as an attorney and I will go to, I will fight. I will go to battle to get them the best possible deal, which he did um, after we told him what we thought we should get. Um, but, but no, he wouldn't. We never, we never really had what I consider to be uh, anything uh, in the lines of, of real management. So, and that, that didn't, that didn't help.
0: Okay. Yeah. Cause that's a whole nother, like. Can of worms to understand and try to like, to like managing and then booking and like handling all that while while having all this like as far as like a record contract and everything to like uphold, I imagine would be a lot. Uh, as like it's exciting and like um, it's a, like a, st- a step of success, but also trying to navigate all like the business end of things, like I I got to imagine it would be very confusing at first.
1: It, it had its uh, it had its I mean. Chris and I were, you know, pretty smart about certain things, but, you know, it was only as smart as we could be, and, uh, and it, it would have been uh, useful to have some other, some other stuff going on. But, again, you know, we were a pretty strange band.
0: Um, so when you guys do get signed, when do, you, uh, when do you open for television before or after? Yes,
1: it was before. Okay. It was. It was before we went in to record the album.
0: Okay. Okay. So how See, was that, Karen? Was
1: that? <laughs> well, that was one of the highlights of my life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really, truly was. Um, uh, it's. It's. Uh, where do you go from there? Um, uh, Karen had signed Television to Elektra. She Television were her babies when she was at Elektra Records. And then she went on to Warner's where we, we got signed. So she arranged for us to have the gig opening for television and, um, opening for that band, uh, with Richard Lloyd, the, you know, it was the original band, and it was the last gigs that they were playing before they would break up. I mean, obviously they got back together in a couple of different forms, uh, over the years, but, um, they, to be able to, I mean, fine, playing the bottom line in New York was cool. Uh, Knowing that there were um, uh, people in the audience that we were kind of, who were people we admired, you know, that were hearing us. I know that, I think Eno was there at one point, Fripp was there at some point, David Byrne was there. That was all cool. The real juice was getting to see television play that set six times in three nights i mean i've never heard i've never experienced uh, i had never and never will experience anything like that um i had been a television fan but you know that those two albums are really kind of brittle sounding you know, I mean, there's there, there's great stuff, but from a sound standpoint, they sound uh, the word I use is brittle, you know, and and you go in and and you're standing in front of that stage, you're standing in the wings and you come to realize that what the fellows that are playing that material live are a big ass, loud rock band with a couple of amazing guitar players. And they just blast all that stuff that you had really, really liked, you know, at you while cracking your skull open. And it was spectacular. It was spectacular. I mean, hearing Marquis e. Moon six times, you know, having them open the show six times with, with Ain't That Nothing. I mean, it was, it was just the best. It was the best.
0: That's so cool. That's and that's in, interesting like observation like a lot of times with records you have to round out some of like the lower ends like to, especially with guitar so the like bass and the kick drum kind of cut through so that, like they really get the full effect of it that that sounds incredible did you get the mingle yeah it, with the dudes you know I did not um,
1: um I have I've probably to a fault throughout my lifetime I I do not tend to uh, seek people out um, because just because they're like, if I'm in a professional scenario, you know, we're playing that night, they're playing that night, I, I avoid acting like a fan. So, uh, and they were, you know, all that was a period where at least a couple of them were doing a lot of smack and um, that we knew, that I knew. So I was just sort of like keeping my distance. Um, I mean, uh, since then, I met all of them. Uh, I have a very funny relationship with Fred Smith um, because of of some projects that he and I have both done. Um, And uh, I do have an open invitation. Dolly and I have an open invitation from Jimmy Rip that should we ever decide to come to Argentina, we have a place to stay. So and uh, and I had a lovely conversation with Verlaine the one time that I spent with him. And so, you know, that's since then. Yes. Oh, and Richard Lloyd is the first person I ever blocked on Facebook. But that's a whole other (laughs) story.
0: Um, (laughs) He uh, didn't Chris record on some of Richard's stuff.
1: Well, Richard, I don't think he recorded on any of them, but he, he went on the road with Richard um, gotcha. okay, okay. as his drummer on a couple right. of occasions.
0: Oh, uh, okay. Okay, I thought it was that's, that's sick, though. Like You're going to be showing up in, a, uh, in... <laughs> Argentina and be in his driveway.
1: <laughs> well, it could happen. You know, I mean, there are times when you go, well, wait a minute, Jimmy lives down there. Maybe we should go see what Argentina's about, you know. But um, I suppose it could happen we do some traveling. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great. It's, it's, it was great getting to, uh, know Fred. And of course, peripherally around, I was around Billy Ficka because of Chris and the waitresses. Um, you knew that, right? That Billy was his drummer. And yeah, but, um, yeah, that was, that was a big night. So
0: that's all before big going to the record this record, right? So like you're riding into this recording session from from that. <laughs> like Yeah,
1: not long after that. Um yeah, recording the album was was a, a really interesting experience.
0: Well now it was Paul so he produced. So was he there during all these recording sessions? And like Yes. Okay. And like with like the weirdness that I'd, I mean, I when I listen to to your guys' music, I hear really complex. Like, there's like sk- like bits of so many different genres kind of happening at once, and very complex as far as like the the structure of the tune. I'm like, okay, this would take some study to get right. Um, so when you're working with a guy like like that in a session, and then Paul's there, like, how is he like ha- helping navigate <laughs> like the the weirdness and the in the complex, the complexities. Um, mm, mm. or were you guys already? And he just kind of like, I'm over yeah. here. Just letting you guys do whatever.
1: Uh, kind of. Um, yeah, I mean, he could help where, where, in places where he could help, you know, he might suggest something with the miking or something, but, um, he even said at, at, uh, that we were such a, a departure, um, for him, that he almost quit halfway through it, because <laughs> and 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 he says this with love yeah. he, it was just he just said, harvey, i just didn 't know what to do with you guys, you know because we we're pretty we we're pretty strong minded, and how do you ask and and I think your point is is well taken how do you ask a band to tweak something that 's coming from a place? where you really don't know whether a left-hand turn or a right-hand turn is really the appropriate thing to do with that. You know, um, it was really unconventional stuff, you know, so, uh, yeah. Um, but as I said, he's a lifelong friend and, uh, um, He's been to my house in Ohio, and, you know, we've spent a lot of time in his place in L.A. Uh, but he—he, he, we were pretty strong-willed, so we kind of did what we did.
0: Well, I feel like...
1: Which when, is, you know, in retrospect, uh, you know, that's good, and that's not so great.
0: So well, well I mean, you stuck to your vision, and, like, the, if oh, anything... Yeah. If, if, if That's, you know, to, and especially with anything that's kind of coming from an abstract place or, like... Kind of going back to like, if you play this noise with enough attitude, it seems like you meant all those notes, you know what I mean, or the lack yeah of the well, notes. by the time we got around to,
1: by the time we got around to doing the album, we there was intention in just about everything we did there, you know so that made it even harder, you yeah. know, it's not yeah. like, hey, why don't you try playing it standing on your head, yeah. you know um, uh, But when we did our second album, the one that we we put out ten years later, disinformation. There were a few songs that Chris uh, Butler helped produce, and a few songs that uh, uh, Robbie Sabino helped on. Robbie was the uh, keyboard player for Chic, and uh, so he ended up uh, doing all the a bunch of the keyboards on like the Let's Dance album. And there were like suggestions and and things that came into play. I mean, we were uh, certainly more structured uh band uh i i described the disinformation album as being one that to a to a large degree um uh, when we talked about when we would talk about how well, we we grew up with the beatles and the stones and we were huge television fans and and we also loved our soft machine and captain beefheart uh a lot captain beefheart um and so there was all this stuff but this album we're actually working in more conventional structures because that's also a part of what we've eaten and who we are. And it'll be fun and interesting to be maybe a bit more of a guitar band, you know, more of a, uh, uh it's hard to explain, I guess, but, but that we don't have to be incredibly insidiously weird at every turn, which we had, Really, previously taken great pride in. You know, our our feeling was that if we had seen somebody starting to tap their feet, we should probably put in a five-four rhythm shift right there because why are they tapping their feet? You know, so in, with this information, working with um, some slightly more conventional forms, there were times that a producer would say, you know, I think this would work better if you didn't repeat that particular move another four times. Let's cut to the chase. And certain things that would really help tighten things up. And it was it was interesting and it was revelatory hearing the idea, then doing it and seeing where it helped. And and that's supposed to be what a producer does. You know, it's like I want to, if there are five of you who have busted your asses to make this as good as you can, let me be the sixth guy that's coming in with fresh ears and, and helping to take it just another half step, you know,
0: I definitely think if a musician's producing it, that that direction can be maybe a little clearer, more clearly understood and given.
1: Yeah, perhaps, you know, I, I, I guess it's always going to be a, a courses for horses thing. It's going to be, who is it? And what are you guys doing um, with producers? You know, I mean, um, I think that, uh, there was, we were really trying hard at first uh, when we were looking at different producers for contents dislodge, we were trying to get Jimmy Iveen because of just the general sound and the dynamic we thought that he could bring, um, uh, that he had done like on, when he engineered um, Born to Run, uh, we thought, you know, he could conceivably bring some, some more meat and more uh, more of a uh, conventional kick to the sound of us playing all this crazy shit, you know. But he wasn't available, and uh, we liked Paul, so we went that route.
0: Um, And I guess at one point, Captain Beefheart was around?
1: Well, he, he came into the studio to pay a visit, but partially because um, we thought that it would just be the biggest feather in our cap if we could get Captain Beefheart to guest on our album. And there is a harp, a harmonica solo in, uh, I'm pretty sure it's the song Slide um, uh, on, on the album. And uh, Don came in and sat down and he listened to what we weren't sure that he was going to be coming in. So Ralph had already laid down a harp part and, uh, Don listened to it and said, "No, nah, that's really good. Damn. Was, <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Well, it was probably better harp than Don would have played. Ralph was pretty spectacular. And, and Ben Vliet was a, was, was also, you know, a, a strange and angular talent. Um, but he hung out and we talked for a while and smoked cigarettes, and, uh, and it was a great experience because I, I had already been ruined by seeing Captain Beefheart shows. And uh, it, was, it was great. It was great. I will always that's another highlight. You know, if I really, really am pushing and thinking of highlights of my career, it always like I said, it's like being a zealot, you know, it's like having those moments with, with other people that I really admire
0: like hanging out with him did you was there any kind of like lessons or like just like kind of philosophies that you gleaned from the brief time oh hell no
1: um, <laughs> <laughs> he was sitting next to me <clears throat> excuse me and he uh we had you know the set uh, the engineers had the uh the 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 uh, the set sheet the the album uh, order of, of songs uh, taped to the, the mixing console. And he he flips it up and he looks at it and he goes, Puppet Wipes? Why would you want to call a song Puppet Wipes? It sounds like something Frank would do. You should call it Puppet Wipes. At which point I said, but then, Don, it would sound like something that you did. And he looked at me and went, And? <laughs> and I thought yeah I get that (laughs) no not at all He was not he was not helpful but it was so weird it was just so weird and strange a thing to be hanging out with him because keeping in mind that somebody that you're I mean I had I had shook his hand at a gig one one time and uh but you know never really had talked to him and when you think about the fact that your impression of this creature that's sitting in that room with you is the person that created Trout Mask Replica and, and Clear Spot and Spotlight Kid. I mean, there's he's coming in with a whole lot of ammunition in a way. And so, and I say this because at one point, uh, again, he had one of those responses when Michael, I think, had said something to him about, all the guys in the band Mallard who had been one of his magic bands and they had quit and he, and, and, and was talking about how great they were. And Don said, well, they couldn't have been that great. Could they, (laughs) they left, they left me, you know, and you're like, okay. So then at some point we're just sitting there and there's like this brief moment of quiet and all of a sudden he goes, anyone want a camel? <laughs> and we're all thinking I swear to you we're all thinking he's saying some really fucked up thing about a camel sort of like the end of Clear Spot where he went webcore webcore and we have no idea what's happening and then he pulls out a pack of camels and orders offers us cigarettes it was like we were we were completely nonplussed.
0: Well, with a character like that, you, you know, you, the mythos that follows all these records and all these songs. You're like, I know. Has I mean, you just said a
1: normal. More. You asked a very, <laughs> very normal question, and everybody is thinking that you know they're hearing some historically weird seer-like thing, and all he was doing was offering you smoke. So uh,
0: that, that probably followed him around, like. <laughs>
1: I think so. I think so. <laughs>
0: um, so also, like, during this period, you meet William Burroughs, too?
1: We were... I did, yes. Yeah. We were... Um, we were... Uh, you've been paying attention. Um,
0: I know who I'm talking about. i <laughs> getting ready, man.
1: Jesus. Um, we had done the album uh, for Warners, and... None of us, including Warner brothers, none of us ended up liking the mix. And so some of the guys from the band went back to Akron and uh, some of us stayed in New York, I mean, in LA. And, um, we had been, when we were making the album, we had been living in these, uh, you know, short term transient apartment rental in Toluca Lake, um, and so those of us who stayed on moved into the Tropicana Hotel, which was historically a notable hotel in that, uh, there was a period of time where Tom Waits lived there and kept his piano in the kitchenette. Um, and one morning, um, cause we were remixing the album at the record plant and, uh, one morning, my, uh, Jim Kaufman, who you had mentioned, knocks on my door and wakes me up and says, you got to look at this. There's this guy out at the, walking around the swimming pool. He looks like William Burroughs. And I stuck my head out the door and I see this guy wearing, this is L.A., you know, it's it's maybe late October, early November, but it's still L.A., and he's wearing like a three-piece suit with a, a fedora and has this like clearly a 19-year-old red-haired boy following him around while these other people in a camera crew are taking pictures of him around the, the, the Tropicana's swimming pool. To So I said, Jim, that doesn't look like William Burroughs. Who the fuck do you think it is? So I threw on my pair of shorts and a shirt, and I went out. And as I was approaching him, I remember thinking of him as a uh, very, uh, in a very scholarly way, uh, you know, because I was a huge fan of his his stuff. And as I got closer and closer to him, I started seeing a an image in my mind, which was um, a headline. Actually, it was a big banner headline in one issue of, of what was then the Soho weekly news. And it was an article about him and it, and, and what the headline asked was, is this really a mammal? Um, because he was really, really like amphibious as a creature. And I got, I got up to him and, and started speaking to him and I asked him what he was doing in LA and he lied. And he asked me what I was doing in LA and I, didn't lie, and finally, at the end, as we were talking, I later learned, I learned, realized, I, I, I realized it by seeing stuff that I was reading, and because I became friends with William Bacris, that it was when Bacris was doing the book, um, Burroughs' Life in the Bunker, which was largely about the time he spent in New York in a living in a, a defunct YMCA behind like a million locked doors um, um, was taking pictures for that book. Um, but the the my favorite part about it was that I, I said to Burroughs, um, listen, I really can't not get your autograph, but, you know, I'm here and I only have three books with me right now. And I don't imagine you'd want to autograph a book by Henry Miller or Delmore Schwartz. And he responded, you are correct. (laughs) And I said, well, the only other book that I have was sent to me by my wife for my birthday. And it's a pictorial called the Goodyear blimp book. And he said, that'll do. (laughs) So I am the owner of a, a rarity I have, I still have it. It's the Goodyear blimp book with, uh, you know, regards to Harvey from William Burroughs. <laughs> that's the most So that like, was a great, exp- great experience.
0: That's so cool. That's like the most like, <laughs> like, <Akron thing. laughs> like yeah, uh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was,
1: and again, you know, like I said, once again, you know, what, what are these great moments that I remember? And, uh, you know, those are those between playing with television and and uh, and and the Beefheart story and the Burroughs story. It's like you know, I just managed to somehow, whether I was doing anything notable or not, is almost irrelevant. <laughs> you know, it's 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 these these uh, encounters that have been really kind of spectacular.
0: Well, I I definitely think if you are doing something, it's notable. And if you're doing something that is notable, you find yourself around notable people, even if they don't take a note of it. Like, so. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank I'll, you. I'll just I'll, put I'll, that there. You're, you're out in LA, you're track or mixing and you're hanging out with William Burroughs. Sounds pretty notable to me. <laughs> but anyway, on,
1: but see, my viewpoint is that it's, it's Harvey from Akron who just happened to by circumstance, be staying in this shitty hotel. I'm, Santa Monica Boulevard. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it's it was pretty funny.
0: Um, And is that uh, uh, when you're out there? Was that when you guys you and Chris met Frankie Valley with with mixing?
1: No, um, no. Okay, uh, but so I will say that when <laughs> we were when we were at Warner Brothers Studios doing our album, I never I didn't do this. And I had forgotten about it because, you know, I think Chris probably just walked in and said, blah, 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 blah but he was going down the hallway to go to the bathroom and ended up having uh, a, a really nice little conversation with Prince. Whoa. <laughs> I, and I, you know, yeah. that's pretty cool. But I mean, I have to admit back then, um, you know, when, when I think of Prince's first two albums, I, they are albums that I really like, but I went back for them. You know, I wasn't current with what Prince was doing, but Chris knew who he was. Told him how much he liked his his album, that first album, and you know, he says this little guy with this like really tiny guy with an afro. And uh they had a very nice cordial conversation, but uh I I never got to meet him. Although uh Ry Cooter stopped in uh ever so briefly, just like opened the door to the studio, said hi, waved, and left. So that was nice. But um well, I think he was stopping in to say hi to the engineers, you know, who he knew, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's it's that was all kind of interesting. No, The, the, the deal with Frankie Valley was that after we had left Warner Brothers, um, we wanted to finish up uh, and we ended up releasing a single on Clone called English Kids. And the flip side was a song that I co-wrote with my pal Chuck Keith called Sister Rose and we were at the um what's what was it called house of music in i think west orange new jersey um mixing it and uh while we were doing that session we we had a brief meet up and handshake and and oh my god oh my god oh my god moment um meeting uh in you know probably in the coffee room meeting frankie valley um who was this little piece of leather yeah Yeah. Yeah. i mean he was not a big guy and uh and he was you know just sort of a leathery little italian guy it was really nice he was very sweet
0: were you were you living at woodstock at in woodstock at that point
1: no as a matter of fact While we were in the studio, my wife Kay at the time was actually almost on the verge of putting down a deposit for an apartment up in Washington Heights in Manhattan for us when I got a call from Michael and Stewart, who had driven with Ralph up to Woodstock um, to uh, help him move there uh, and had called me and said, if we all move to Manhattan, we're crazy, we have to move here. And they argued, their arguments were great, and so I told Kay, hold up, and the next weekend after I came back from Jersey, uh, the next weekend she and I drove up to Woodstock and looked around, and it was pretty magical, and we ended up renting a house and moving there.
0: Okay. And so at that point, the first record's out. Did you guys... Were you touring or wrapped up touring when you made that move? At that
1: point, at that point, we we had done uh, a little bit of touring. We never did any real substantial touring. Um, Most of the stuff that we did was around the East Coast and the Midwest. Um, And uh, again, management could have used it. Um, (laughs) It would have helped. But it was, it was, uh, uh, so we had, we had, we had tried touring. Uh, the album sales were what they were going to be. The airplay was what it was going to be. We had a an interestingly semi-contentious conversa- series of conversations with some business affairs people at Warner's, and had um, and they ended up buying out the rest of our contract. So by the time we did English Kids and and uh, Sister Rose we knew that we were no longer on Warners, and we were planning on what our collective and individual next moves were going to be.
0: Okay. Was Clone, clone? was that Nick from Bizarro's label?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's Nick Nicholas. Really important guy. Really important guy to us. Um, there were not a lot of independent record labels back then, and he was one. And because of the independent stuff that we... Had put out, including Chris, because he put out a single um, on uh, and under the name The Waitresses, uh, way back, um, of uh, The Comb and a song called Clones, um, uh, and that actually had an influence on us asking him to join us. Um, that was all on. That was all stuff that made its way to people like Robert Criswell and to Cream Magazine and to. Trouser press and you know uh, had these these various rags sort of making a little bit of uh, uh, giving us a little bit of an acknowledgement for what we were doing.
0: I had, one thing that I really admire about the Ohio scene is there's so many characters and people who bring it up on their own, like carry that own weight and mm. Nick being one of them. Um, so, Absolutely. Okay, so uh, and then. I guess, so you're out in Woodstock. Is that in, in in so you're tracking with these other tracks? Is that when uh, you you start working with Todd Rudgren's video prog- uh, project as well?
1: Yeah, uh, when I when I moved to Woodstock, uh, two things were going on. One was Michael and Stewart and I had been the ones who ended up in Woodstock. Chris was close; he was in New York, and Ralph was also in in Woodstock. For a while before he moved down to Brooklyn, so we were sort of retooling where tin Huey what was going to uh, compromise or, or comprise rather actually compromise is a pretty good slip uh, but what would comprise tin Huey um, and actually one of the projects I'm working on right now is a bunch of tracks that we recorded in Woodstock back then that have never been released
0: yeah
1: um, but um um I'm trying to remember what question I was answering. Um,
0: working with, well, <laughs> I want to know what... Oh, well, Rundgren. <laughs> yeah. I, had to make a, I had to
1: make a living and pay the rent after a certain point. You know, the Warner Brothers money was going to run out. And so I got a job working as a production assistant when Rundgren um, was moving all of his video equipment um, from Studio B, I think it was in B, up at Bearsville Recording, Albert Grossman's place, he was moving it down, we were moving it to uh, down the hill to uh, a new building that Albert had built for Todd to put Utopia video into. And so uh, my job was just, you know, grunt work, getting things schlepped in and wired, and I stayed on working um, as a production assistant on some productions of Todd's videos and that's where I got to meet Ray Davies when he was in for a day, uh, checking it out for a possible place to do a kinks video. Um, That'd be
0: cool. That's pretty sweet. And, and, that's, and of that's course, God. I mean, <laughs> yeah.
1: you know, and and, uh, and I, I discovered that his, uh, his drummer, uh, Willie Wilcox, was somebody I could talk boxing with. So that was good.
0: Was it, I guess, did he, being around that type of production, like was there any lessons from either like from Todd and how he ran it that made you like want to do gold, uh, uh, um, teleproductions? Well, um, or inspired. I guess it, sure. Interestingly,
1: well, you know, the thing was, is that I, I, you know, we, we, when we left Warner brothers, we started producing some demos because we certainly knew people in the viz- business and we were still in Akron at that point. And, you know, we, we went down this, this, this demo wormhole, which was, you know, like Harvey Leeds over at MCA would say, wow, I really like that song out of four. Um, uh, let me hear more. Um, so essentially saying, well, the, th- the four songs that you showed us didn't merit me wanting to give you a record contract, but I really dug that one song. And then somebody at Chrysalis, it was always a different single song they liked, but they wanted more. And somebody at Virgin, same thing. And so it became just, it got to a point where where it was, uh, um, we were suffering from demo fatigue. And that's when I couldn't, I was looking around in Akron and I was like, you know, I love this place, but I, I can't write here anymore. I got to get out. And Chris wanted to move to New York anyway. And Ralph wanted to move to Woodstock because of Creative Music Studios. So we left and we moved to Woodstock. And then we did the same thing. But in that case, it was the band that gets represented to a fair degree on disinformation. It was Michael, Stewart, me. Ralph played on a bunch of stuff. And then uh, I think he's listed on the album as Ralphie Boy, but it's Ralph Legnini who ended up playing guitar with the band. And I ended up doing, um, on the record, mostly keyboards. And then when we were on the road, because we did a couple more tours of the East Coast and Midwest, I played bass live uh, because Mark didn't move with us. Um, So I became the bass player, which was also revelatory. As a musician, you you can imagine... Going from being playing keyboards and guitar and then suddenly finding yourself writing music from the position of the rhythm section, it really changes your writing. It was was really neat. Um, But that was a long, long, circuitous way of saying, then we suffered from fatigue with that version of the band, and I needed to make a living and had built up a resume. Um, however many skills I did or did not have was less important than the fact that I could drum up a, a resume after working for Todd and then ended up heading down to New York. Um, and, uh, with my friend, Bob Lampell, who was his Todd's, uh, lighting director when it, the band was gigging, but he was also his, uh, production manager at the studio who had preceded me to Manhattan and started his own company, I ended up going down and working freelance for a couple different companies, but most notably his, and that's what kind of moved me into television production. But it was really a question just needing to make a living, and wanting to have a career that didn't involve necessarily working in a deli. Although I really liked working in a deli. (laughs) (laughs) I really did. My ego wouldn't allow it, but I really did enjoy it.
0: Well I get it. okay it's so on, on both ends of a thing, at least the deli, you know, you know what's gonna happen. Uh, Tom's gonna come in order the same thing. Like there's a comfort to it. But I, I get that Yeah, I knew
1: that I was gonna be I was gonna be serving chili dogs and Colt forty five to uh, Rick Danko. This, this is Woodstock, mind you.
0: <laughs> but um so I mean, okay, that makes sense. And it's really interesting, I guess, writing from a different perspective did you find writing from that rhythm kind of based perspective that form took a, like a more grooved, like solid, like, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, did the form become I mean It wasn't necessarily
1: funky. It wasn't yeah. necessarily funk, but the fact was that, you know, uh, it would, a riff would strike me. And then, you know, being a guitar player and a keyboard player, I could build the song from there, but starting, you know, with, Something that was happening on the base, uh, or just being in that mindset, just in that mindset was really really interesting and and a number of those those songs are represented on disinformation
0: okay i'm I'm, I'm excited that you're putting together these demos to put out something else that's a cool man um,
1: There were some really interesting things that happened. We recorded five songs. At, it was it was a strange connectivity. A friend of ours, I don't I became friends with him because of my work at, at Utopia Video, Chuck Allen, was working as an engineer for Eddie Offord, who had been Yes's engineer. And Eddie had a studio that he had installed, like a sixteen track studio that he installed in Levon Helm's house, which he had rented. So over in Socrates there was a 16-track studio that Chuck let us come in and record at. So we, we're mastering, remastering these things and doing things uh, using some plugins to do some manipulation because all we ended up with at the end of the day was cassette versions of the mixes. Um, so we haven't been able to remix, but we've been able to pull some things out of them and, and spread out the... Uh, uh, the, the stereo spectrum and, and make them start sounding like records um, there are five songs we did there and then some other stuff that we recorded in various places uh a couple things including i mean including a song i wrote minutes after we moved to Woodstock from Akron called Woodstock which was which was recorded with a uh, an ARP Odyssey synthesizer, an SM58 microphone, bouncing tracks back and forth between a Harman Kardon HK2000 cassette deck and a Wallensack cassette deck. It was like a real R. Stevie Moore kind of approach to recording, and I've got that there. That's pretty funny sounding.
0: That's cool. But, uh, That's cool, man. Wow. Yeah, it was it was fun. Um, so I guess during that time, uh as far as like everyone kind of starts doing their own thing, but then Ralph gets, uh, these like Ralph and friend shows together. And then at at one point when you move back to Akron, can you, yes,
1: I I basically took, yeah, I, I I took a good 10 years off from playing music, uh, or more. Um, it was just a different life. You know, I'd moved down to Manhattan. I'm, I'm, I'm really like, it's almost like going back to college for a grad degree in, in film and video and, uh, and, you know, trying to survive in Manhattan and, uh, and meet some other obligations. So it was, it was a pretty crazy period where I was doing very little, the only stuff that I ever did musically would be when I'd come back to Ohio to visit and Michael and I would go up in his attic and record ridiculously weird shit. Um, actually two of those tracks are part of these recoverable tracks that I have. But, um, uh, ultimately, um, I took a lot of time off. And, uh, when I came back to Akron, two things happened. I played, a uh, Ralph came, came into town and we did a Ralph and friends gig up at the beachland tavern. Same spot. Um, and that was Michael Stewart, me, Ralph and Bob Ethington. And that was the first time Bob had played with us. And, uh, that was a night that was, the opening act was three songs from the black keys, which was pretty funny. <laughs> Cause I think it was like their second gig. Yeah. And I, I remember watching them and thinking, wow, that's really fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was really interesting. They were really good. Um, and and I was like, I, but I kept scratching my head, going, "Patrick's not a drummer," but there he was. Um, and that, and then right after that, uh, Ralph. Uh, not long after that, Ralph was putting together a kind of a Ralph Carney and Friends thing in San Francisco to open for. Um, uh, which one was it? It was, uh, uh, Les Claypool's, uh, uh, thing. Um, Colonel Claypool presents Bernie's bucket of brains, which was Les Claypool, Bernie Worrell, who yeah. we knew. Yeah. Really? Um, I had, I had met Bernie at rock and Rio in 91. And I think Ralph had met Bernie because, you know, Bernie ended up playing on a, oh, what was the name of that band from Akron? Um, shit, Bob Pfeiffer's group. Um, I'll remember it. But Bernie had played on an Akron thing. Um, oh, that's annoying to have that le- hey, that leaky back. brain at this point. But at any rate, um, and then Buckethead was playing guitar and uh, uh, Brain was playing drums. Anyway, uh, so I flew out there and I played like bass and keyboards on on a set that we did opening for them. And uh, then I came back and uh, we got a call from uh, Meredith at uh, uh, the Rock Hall asking us if we could pull Tin Huey back together to headline a Northeast Ohio punk show uh, with the Pagans and the Pink Holes. And uh, while we were not... A punk band. Well, neither was television. But hey, what are you going to do, right?
0: Right. Well, um, I was going to say it's kind of like the Minutemen. You know what I mean? It, like it, it's punk in yeah. its own way. You know what I mean? Like punk is well just y- being in that. You're way. You're
1: right. I mean, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Some of it, some of it had to do with style rather than substance. Some of it had to do with timing. Some of it had to do with venues. In our case, it was the period of time that we were functioning and. The one thing that really did distinguish Tin Huey, um, and that's one of the reasons why Karen Byrd signed us, because she thought that we would build a following with our live show, is that we may have been what was later revealed to me. I know this sounds crazy. I did not know this um, until Robert Criscoll wrote the liner notes for um, this uh, album, that the Smog Veil album, um, Before Obscurity, the Bush Flow Tapes. Um, that said, I don't normally like bands like this. And what he was saying was, we were a prog band. And I never thought of us as a prog band. But as I go back, I think about it. And you know, when you were talking about like all the complexities that we had, we were a band that was playing prog music, except we were doing it at 120 decibels at 400 miles an hour, which was very punk. You know, I mean, we brought we brought the fact of how much I loved playing tvi you know to to what else we were doing so i guess i understood that but that that's what kind of got us going again you know at the day the morning after um we played at the rock hall um chris and i went up to kent and did a we we practiced it in my driveway that morning playing guitar and uh I borrowed a little baby Casio keyboard from Stuart and we went up to uh, this uh, benefit that was being done for some sort of thing that had to do with Kent state and may 4th at the Beachland again. And Chris and I did a uh, three or four songs as a duet, a couple of his songs, a couple of my songs and, uh, um, decided that this was a good idea. And, uh, ended up calling it uh, Half Cleveland, and that started that band, which went on for more than a couple of years.
0: Are you guys still doing Half Cleveland stuff? No. Okay. I really like no. that live cut um, from the Tri-C, um, Art rap program live album you guys did.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, I it was fun. You know, Tommy Wiggins asked us to come and do it because... It gave his class a chance to record a, a band uh, uh, under vaguely controlled circumstances. So we did this at Tri C in uh, in their uh, um, Wi Fi cafe, you know, their their, their little uh, computer cafe, and the the students recorded it, and we gave some notes, and most of the notes didn't really go through, but the kids mixed it. And then a while later, I thought, you know what? There were some really, really good performances by this four-piece band. Um, And it was a a couple of, especially a couple of Chris's songs that were really nuts. And it was really interesting that we were doing it as a four-piece. And uh, it was like a very just odd cocktail band. And so we decided to remaster it and release it.
0: Was it uh, the, the very last one was a really wonky one? The, the country western one? <laughs> that one was cool. Oh, <laughs> Idiot Trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that structure uh, is all I got to tell you. <laughs> I loved
1: playing that song partially because um, uh, on the original that Chris did, it was the one time where he actually wrote and he brought in somebody to help him put it into, you know, ha- help him chart it, wrote a string part. And so I got to sort of play the string part on keyboards or a version of it. Yeah. And I always loved that. It was uh, it was a real uh, you know sort of a Roy Rogers-y kind of cowboy song, you know, which I just loved playing. You know, I've I've always loved I've always loved the challenge of playing songs that Chris wrote. <laughs>
0: But I think that's a really cool like a balance of working with another songwriter who's is out there as you are with stuff, you know what I mean? Like I could listening it was a cool counterpoint to hear after listening to the Tin Huey records and listening to the Chris stuff, to like to hear like, Oh, okay, on this one, I think maybe he's taking more of the lead. You know what I mean? Like right. at least with that first record, Tin Huey records Well the main
1: the main thing about Chris is that he uh he's just, he's brilliant. And he comes up with these, these parts and these like guitar parts. I mean, that was the thing for me that I, one of the things I really took away from being with Half Cleveland was that there were times that I had to teach myself and get a little help from him to learn guitar parts that were, because he was so unbelievably structured that you know, there were riffs in there and guitar parts that were really just key to the way the song drove through. And so when you're, it's the same thing as like wanting to get the sheet music for giant steps. It's like when you're forcing your fingers and your musical consciousness to take on stuff that if you were just leaving it to where you would naturally gravitate, um, it It just changes what you do and what you can do and what you hear because you would not normally play like that, and that 's kind of fun, sort of like if it's like guys who were in cover bands forever well they 're ending up playing other people 's licks, and I just was in a band May he rest in peace because he just passed away, Denny Coyle, who was in this band the high fives with me, and he had spent a career playing um in cover bands but oh my god you'd come up with a song and you'd kind of get a sense of what the style would be and then he would come roaring in with the most brilliantly played appropriate guitar part for it he was just he had it turned him into just a serious serious guitar hero um once you know all that playing and all those cover songs and all that stuff distilled into well what what does Denny do it It ultimately ended up becoming this is what Denny does, and it's fucking great
0: i guess it's like the cool thing about any I guess creative endeavor is like there's endless things to learn and endless ways to learn how you do what you do, if it's art or if it's or if it's painting or if it's music or if it's baking, whatever, and like the, the that idea that drilling yourself on this thing eventually leads to um, self actualization or like being able to say what you want to say because you've heard someone say how they want to say it you know that's like the, that's the, the yeah mythos of and
1: like, it it helps give you the tools to say what it is you want exactly. to say yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah. Um, yeah the high five group was really good and you were mostly doing you know it that? was interesting what's that you did mostly keys on that right.
1: I, I Yes, it was an interesting, it was a great and grand experience for me. Um, for one thing, I was able to get back together. I was still in half Cleveland when I started sitting in with the high fives because uh, the bass player, Trent, uh, Michael Hausman, who had also played with the bad dudes, was hounding me to come and play with them because Chuck Keith and Denny Coyle and I had a band way back in like 1971 or 72 called Willie just for a short period of time. We did one gig, but Chuck and I were roommates. We had housemates and on that piano that was covered in cardboard, uh, co-wrote the song sister Rose that was done by Tim Huey. Um, And I said, well, if you can get Chuck to leave his house, I'll come play with you guys. And he got Chuck to leave his house. And one of the best things about the hi fives was, uh, absolutely, was the social component of it. But while I thought they were, you know, these were all songs that were written by Chuck, who was an incredibly clever songwriter. Um, And had a beautiful voice. And a good guitar player as well. And um, what it allowed me to do when I said that I was like a utility infielder in all my bands. You know, I was like, some songs I played guitar, some songs I played keyboard. A good half the time I was fronting the band. I was singing. um, I was writing. I had all those things going on. With the high fives, it was almost exclusively me getting to try and become a better piano player. And it really was a wonderful opportunity. I kind of went into that band thinking, well, they're fun. It's kind of poppy. It's kind of, you know, it's not the kind of stuff that I used to do. But I thought, okay, so my my goals here are to see, when I look at a song of theirs, and I'm going to come up with a piano part. I would say, what would Nicky Hopkins or Bill Payne of Little Feet do here if they only had like 15% of their their actual ability, which is how I figured that was my baseline. And uh, it just really helped me become a better piano player. And sadly, by the time uh, we lost Chuck and Denny, um, uh, and therefore the band vaporized, um, we were really good. I mean, I was... In earnest, it was, it felt like in some ways it was playing with a band, uh, 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 on almost a little feet level, you know, Denny's guitar playing was always spectacular. The songwriting was varied, but it was always clever. Rich Roberts, our drummer who, you know, came from Chai Pig and was an original member of the high fives was just a killer drummer. It was like it had become like a really really good band you know it was kind of like well we've all played long enough that uh even if one of us makes a misstep the rest of the band is so good they've got you you know they've got your back and they're just going to run right through the song and nobody's going to (laughs) know you know it was it was that sort of thing and i have to also say that playing with the high fives was the only band I've ever played with where I could actually say that every single gig we played live in front of an audience was, was just a total joy. So musicians don't get to, you don't get to enjoy it. That kind of, that kind of run, you know?
0: Well, and, and, you know, when you're like, like with Tin Huey, where there, it seemed like there was a lot of extra pressure from like trying to make this, like success, you know what I mean? Like there's, it's see, like all those other things factor into, to like just enjoying the gig and make it, you know, make it being smooth. I guess it also being kind of, I don't know if you were running or managing the, this group as much as just kind of being in it, you know? So also kind of just well, that's being it. in it. Yeah. Too. I mean, Is I would, like... I would
1: help with, I would help because I was a keyboard player. I could definitely contribute a lot in terms of arrangements and I knew what I knew you know, and I and these are my friends. So certainly, if I can contribute, I will. But still, it was all from the standpoint of sitting in front of my Nord and my Korg and just doing it, trying to make my contributions from being a piano player, which was great.
0: Is that at the same time were you doing uh, Golems of the Red Planet?
1: Well, then Golems came after that, and that excited me because. The, the, the thing that the, that the Golems allowed me to do was almost purely, at least for a time, concentrate on nothing but my guitar playing and, yeah. and composition and, and be able to stretch some of those muscles that I used in Tin Huey compositionally um, because we were dealing with such a strange project and strange universe.
0: Did you, uh, initially, was it your, did you find the, the Zorn uh, Masada uh, book? No, or, no. Or who brought that um, to you? Okay.
1: A bass play, The bass player of the band, Mark Allender, is a, a total, he's our absolute in-house Zornophile. Um, he's, he's created a website about Zorn. He, he really, really has just loved what Zorn has done. And he's our connection to Zorn because Zorn has heard all the stuff we've done and has responded about it. Yeah. Um, And he's had some pretty fun responses. Um, But um, Mark is the one who will uh, come to us and say, okay, from the Masada, um, here's some stuff that I've got that I think will work for us. Because he had the idea originally of it being using the Masada material, which is all, you know, minor third stuff coming from like Ashkenazi Jewish folk modalities. He, he felt, and he had this idea, and you can understand how a guy from Tin Yui would react to that when he goes, and I think we could probably do that as a surf band.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so my reaction to it was, wow, that's fucked up. I think we could do that, and I don't like surf music, so that makes it even better, you know? <laughs> So anyway, I, so it was his idea and that, but it was up to me to put the band together. And so I got Bob Effington to play drums. who was totally into it. Um, and, um, um and I thought, you know, if we're going to do this, let's make it really interesting. Um, and I thought what would be really fun to do would be a John Zorn based, um, surf band with a cellist so uh i asked matt reese if he'd be interested in doing it and he was so that's how it became the four of us
0: Those, those all those tunes sound really good you guys did a really good job thank you like thank you because like i i was when after we met at the beachland, i dove into to the the whole band camp with the, uh, all those singles i was like man these are so mm-hmm. well done and like started to dive into um to, I get, apparently John Zorn was in a surf band for a very brief time in his life when he was super young, but so, oh, no kidding. Yeah. So I, I, you guys might be tickling his heartstrings with, with doing this mm. in the surf style. Like that's, <laughs> that's interesting. I'm so, did well, you, the thing about, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, did he mention that at all when responding? He
1: never mentioned to me or to us in any of the, the stuff that Mark shared with us, that he had been in a surf band But um, he has really, really liked everything we've done. Um, um, And uh, I can't remember which one it was. It might have been the last one we did. He thought that he uh, he heard a little Ennio Morricone in it, and and that is one of his heroes. So he especially liked what we did with that one, even though that was – never the plan or the intent. And I thought, oh, 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 okay. I know what part you're talking about. Okay. (laughs) No notion. Um, But that band has been really fun because, you know, when you go through the Masada, you see that what he wrote, if all you do is play what he wrote, all of your tracks are going to last for about 40 seconds to a minute, 10. Um, And most of the stuff that has been done from the Masada, and by the band, the Masada band, involves a lot of, uh, most of it, not all of it, but, um, uh, and by other people, um, are jazz people, and so you, you run through what he did and then you get a sax solo or you get a piano solo or uh, something to that effect. Uh, there's a band that does nothing but vocals, and you, you get a vocal solo section, which is cool. I mean, some of the stuff's really good, but the, what it does is it affords you the opportunity to say, "What kind of style do you want this one to have? What what sound do we want to have here? What do we? What can we do to make this different than the others?" And um, that's where I get a chance to. You know, write these little sections you know if 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 John gave us an uh, an A and a b, I'm writing the c and or a C and a D, and uh, turning it into whatever we turn it into, um, you know, like Mark has done the heavy lifting in terms of taking the material and distilling it to a place where he can actually write out the music and maybe do like a um, a a uh, a MIDI. Um, oriented interpretation of it for us to use as a starting point. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the compositional part ends up falling on my shoulders. And then, you know, Matt comes in and it's it's kind of a combination of playing cello parts that I've written for him or that Mark originally wrote. And then him just coming up with stuff, which is usually... Maybe we heard a version of it in practice. Maybe we didn't. And then we're in the studio because the intent of this band was to be a studio band. Um, We have a lot of reasons why, especially at the time when I was in another band um, and had other projects going on and people have various things going on in their lives. And if we were going to depend on coming up with enough songs to play a live show, by now we would have broken up. You know, this is just something that takes time. And the nice thing is, even though it doesn't always work that way, and the intent was to say, if we're not worrying about playing it live, you know, you know this, when you're in a band, you write for the band. You know, it's like, well, I've got, we've got two guitar players and a sax player and blah, blah, blah. And so you write it and you arrange it for those people. And what I'm saying is, what I wanted to do is that if we're doing it in the studio and we have an infinite number of tracks that we can put on, let's try and experiment and create stuff. Right. Not being dependent on four of us or maybe four of us with one extra person playing it live. So that makes it a, a different approach, which is kind of fun.
0: Right. Well, it makes it a whole, like, I mean, the studio is like, it's it's, it's a whole, like, you, you expect more of a lush, kind of well-thought-out piece. At least I feel when like a band codes into a studio, you're you're looking at a more thought-out version of what they're trying to say compared to maybe what you would see live. Live, you're going to see who's there, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I sort of see it, you know, like the way Andy Partridge, like, approached XTC. You know, it's like, when we're in the studio, I can try all sorts of stuff. And, you know, sometimes you find stuff works, you know. I mean, we don't have a, a an unlimited budget. And, but the thing is, I've also got like a, a little Zoom 16-track recorder where we practice. And so we can you know, between the four of us, we can like try little things here and there and see how they work. So it it just sort of becomes a a process. And interestingly, people have asked us about playing out and I've started thinking about it. I'm like, you know, if we had a fifth person who was kind of a utility infielder also to places where I've double tracked guitar parts and I've got you know, a, a fifth person we could play actually most of these tunes, not all of them. Some of them it's been just like, no, we'll leave that one alone. Um, but it's been a great, it's been it's been great, and I love the guys. the The people in the band are terrific. So, it, again, it's a uh, there's a social component to that that's really lovely. We get together to practice, and we probably spend the first hour and a half talking rock and roll crap, sitting around eating peanut butter pretzels and drinking. And then, and then we go in and like, you know, knock off a, a whole lot of progress on one of these tunes in like a half an hour or 40 minutes. And then I'm like, well, I don't want to stand here anymore. We're done. And then, you know, but that's, again, that's why we've been doing this for, I don't know how many years, you know, three years now, maybe. And we have how many songs down eight songs, nine songs, yeah. you know, it's,
0: I don't know. I got to recount. Yeah.
1: Um, I think it's eight. <laughs> but but we did but a really cool video with my, my, that my wife edited. I don't,
0: I don't know if I did saw Did you notice that? I don't, I don't think I saw that. Really oh, yet.
1: No. If, if you go, if out. you, for, oh, okay. So if you go to, hold on one sec. So if you Google Golems of the Red Planet, and it'll give you a website. An actual website called Red Golems something something, and when you go to that, you'll see that one of the options on the homepage is a. Um, uh, it's called a jukebox. If you click on the jukebox, it gives you all the songs, all the you know the 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 streamable songs that are on Bandcamp. They're just links to the Bandcamp page, and then there's also a. You'll see in the corner there's a, a video for the song Mahalal. And I think you might find that really fun.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um one thing that's cool about the Masada is like how it kind of takes like Jewish music and like kind of revamps it. But what I think really works nice with surf music is like uh uh-huh. Jewish music kind of has like this like tendency of like the, the harmonic minor that that you know, what yes, I mean? and like Dick Dale, Misirlou is all that you know. What I mean, so that absolutely really, that, really well. and that
1: was Mark's point. That was Mark's point. You know, he was like listening to all this Orin to st- all this Masada stuff, and he's like, I could hear almost every one of these done as a surf song. Um, and my problem with surf music, I, I, I was a little flip about it. Um, I'm not a surf music fan except when I really like something that's great. For instance, Chris used to play in a, a band called Purple Kniff, and he's a drummer, and they're really, really good surf band. And I loved them, and I have a really good friend, uh, Dave Rich, who recently, and keep your eye out for this, he's got a new band called Dave Rich and His Enablers, Okay. which, first of all, is a great name. Yeah. And his bass player is David Giffles, His other guitar player is Friday Mike, who played with Chris and me in, in half Cleveland. And Chris is the drummer. And it's really interesting. They do like a million songs. You know, he's a big Guided by Voices fan. But he had a band called uh, the Beyonderers who okay. put out four or five albums. And they were like real just slash and burn futuristic, um, that, that whole sci-fi future surf kind of band. And, uh, and I love them, but the bottom line for me is that I love them. I love both those bands for like three songs, maybe four. And then I have to leave. I'm just, I'm done with it because it's, it's a kind of a narrow genre. Um, I mean, it's got some wonderful moments of genius throughout history and and there' a lot of little variables there, but that's what I like about about doing golems because while I really want to retain in every one of them, every one of the tracks, some sort of surf sensibility. It could just be playing a fender jaguar through a, you know with a lot of reverb, or it could be just the fact that it has a real spacey sound to it. Um, I don't feel that it's necessary for, and obviously you're a musician and you could hear that in what we were doing, that we're not being really like consistently super faithful to an instrumental surf band.
0: Right. Well, I mean, there's even parts where you guys drop into like a Middle Eastern, like there's like a a drone, like you'd hear over like Indian classical music, like really dive into well, that Well, Bob, Bob actually just... has,
1: yes, Bob has, Bob has uh, even studied. Um, he's studied tabla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that song that you're talking about, um, one of the things that happened was we mixed it and I remixed it, And and one of the things that I said was this song is all about the rhythm section. It's all about the drums and bass because before it goes into that tabla section, you've got this really booming, uh, just if you have the drums up hot, which we do, and the bass, it's just the whole song. It doesn't matter what I'm playing and what Matt's playing. It's just, there's this big roaring like, boom, 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 boom. And it's just, you know, it's almost like a march of the elephants. And that song, when Bob said, you know, uh, what if I did a little tabla in the middle? And, I said, why don't we make the whole middle tabla, you know? And I just, I got on my, I got on my Korg and came up with those very. We we actually had a sample of a uh, of that drone, and we made sure it was in the right key, and so we just sampled that drone in, and then the little things above it that are kind of like little sitar-ish kind of sounds were just things that I pulled off on on. The synthesizer on the Korg, um, but yeah, stuff like that—that that makes it fun. You listen to it, and you're like, "Whoa, that's—that was an interesting decision."
0: No, it's yeah. awesome, and I, I like, and it fits with that. I don't know, it fits with the tonality and that kind of. So I get what you're saying. It's like you're you're nodding the hat the surf music when it's needed, but also not, you know. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you
1: try and you you sort of hope that maybe you can make something that you want to make, but you have at least a toe dipped in there somewhere. Even if it's just your your pinky toe and it's barely dipped into the stream. You're there somewhere, at least uh, there, your mind uh, recognizes that, that where you are, what room you're in.
0: Right, right. That's a good way to put it. Um it was and i find interest what what's interesting with these last like three kind of projects we talked or these last two um like you're working on your keyboard skills in one set you're working on your your guitar skills and your composition skills and like really kind of isolating those two skills and focusing on them in different projects when it came to mm-hmm. it's messy was that like you were like honing into songwriting cuz that, that was 2020 <laughs> or well, well
1: I, you know, Chris and I both put out, you know, we, we had talked about doing a half-Cleveland album. And for a variety of reasons, we never did it. And for a variety of reasons, including that, is why maybe we stopped doing half-Cleveland. Um, but he did an album uh, right around close to the same time he was working on his Um, which was a bunch of songs, Uh, you know, this is kind of weird, but, you know, we are of an age where, uh, as I said with It's Messy, I had a bunch of tracks and songs that I had written that had yet to be recorded, some that had been recorded, um, different combinations of musicians, where I thought I would rather be the person to make sure these are mixed and mastered rather than somebody else after I keel over. And it doesn't mean it's the last thing I was going to do because I've continued on, but it's been playing with the high fives, doing stuff with the golems as a solo album. though. this was, this was me saying, I don't want these loose ends out there, but because it was a bunch of stuff from various times and various configurations, um, it was messy. <laughs> That's just kind of why it happened that way. Um, and Chris put out, a, and I, I was, that was one of the last releases from the Smogvale record label. And uh, Chris did a solo album um, called Got It Together, where the T and the H and "Together" are reversed. One of Chris's moments where he gets to chuckle at himself. Um, but that was kind of the same thing. It was those are all songs between those two albums. Like four of the songs that are on my album, I actually took the guys in Half Cleveland, who I'd been playing with, into the studio and recorded them. You know, but it wasn't for a half Cleveland album, it was for my album, because those are my songs. Um and I ended up playing organ and doing some backup vocals on Chris's. Um so it wasn't that I was. It was from a period of time where I was still working as a songwriter, as a singer-songwriter. Um, Golems came after that. All of those tracks, uh, the Hi-Fives, I might have just been starting to dip into, sitting in with them when I was recording the uh, the the, the half Cleveland band. I'll call it the half Cleveland band tracks for that album.
0: Okay like one one tune in particular that really stuck out to me was uh, in consideration for joe strummer um, yeah the solo record that was really cool man yeah thank you i was a big clash fan and they're, they're and i of, was a
1: big, big i was a big actually that that song is less to me clash and it's more mescaleros if i was going in any direction i mean i I loved a lot of the stuff he did with the mescaleros as well
0: Yeah, no. Speaking of like genre bending, like or the the like not living up to the identical punk plug and uh, plug and play, like the Mescaleros and the Clash are right there. They're all over genre wise, you know.
1: Uh, That's that's a that's a really really strong point that you're making. Um, uh, It's kind of funny when we were doing our album in uh, in L.A. um, A friend of Wexler's, a friend of Paul's came over and he had a cassette with him. He had been in England and he'd been working, he'd been hanging out with the Clash in the studio and they were working on, uh, what was the second album? Give Them Enough Rope? Um, and that was one where, uh, who was a Templeman, was producing it, who had, you know, done the Blue Oyster Cult. And uh, apparently... Strummer and and Templeman were fighting uh, tooth and nail about where Strummer's voice should be in the mix. Um, Strummer liked the idea of the punk aesthetic, which really was sort of represented in his mind by the fact of being really, really loud, usually playing gigs where the PA system is not able to keep up. Right, so
0: buried vocals. So he
1: wanted his... He wanted his voice to be more of like one of the instruments and more in the mix. Not, not crazy. I mean, you heard the album. Uh, but he didn't want it to be way up front like, say, Blue Oyster Cult vocals were, which is what Templeman wanted to do. And so this guy came back with a cassette, which was a mix of that album in advance without any vocals on it. And we listened to it tons, and just I grew to love this album. And then it came out, and I was like, Oh my God, I know these songs, except there was Strummer. But um, yeah, the the Clash was uh, was was notable for that. You know, I was really, uh, I don't think this speaks well for me, but I was not real welcoming to punk when it came out. I had been a Stooges fan. I had been an MC5 fan. And, and of course these days that's defined as pre-punk, but I'd been to see the Stooges and I'd seen Iggy and, you know, this was very punk like, but I thought a lot of these punk bands were just sort of uh, reductive posers. And uh, um, I was kind of like an old man asshole about it for a while. And then, And then the clash came out. Well, then I saw the Ramones and I thought, Oh my God, this is like watching an episode of the Flintstones. This is so cool. But, um, which it really was. Um, but I, I, the clash came out and I thought, Oh my God, these guys actually have a musicality to them. I mean, they're still absolutely devastating. And, you know, in a way, it reminded me. It doesn't. It, it didn't then, but it does now. When I talk about like Tin Huey being a prog band, but playing at 140 decibels at 300 miles an hour, it was like the Clash did not neglect the idea of melody and harmony. I don't necessarily mean harmonies, but harmony and and, and a musicality that really informed this stuff they were doing, that made it really, really interesting. And there was a dynamism to them that you hadn't heard in punk. They certainly didn't live the world of, if it's more than three chords, you're not a punk band anymore. Um, You know, they they were wonderful. And yeah, and especially the Mescaleros, where he really did start dealing with, you know, a lot of international flavors and in, in how he wrote and how he uh, he produced these tunes. So yeah, I loved him dearly. And I don't I not even know you know, it started with that guitar riff, which to me was like something straight out of Motown. And then it just kind of went from there. I wrote this song for Joe. It's
0: a great record, man. So one thing I, I... thank you. What with Smogvale I was following them for a while and they seemed to have just fallen off. So what, do you know the story behind that?
1: Yeah. Frank didn't want to do it anymore.
0: Okay. All
1: right. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm in touch with Frank all the time and he's a great guy. And you know, the, the last really big project was, was Peter's, you know, the, the, the box set and, uh, he, re- he he did the box set. He released uh, Chris's album. He released my album. And while the box set was starting off, he released, um, you know, before Obscurity, the uh, the bushflow tapes for Tim Huey. And when he was actually one of the guys that works with him was starting to, on his own, put together what he wanted to do as a similar Sort of retrospective, all-inclusive box set of Tin Huey, um, to which I always said, "Really, why?" But <laughs> that's what he was doing. But Frank just got burned out. He didn't want to make. He didn't want to run a record company anymore.
0: Okay. So right. that just, was it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess he's. he's no.
1: he, yeah, he's enjoying his life. It wasn't like. They went out of business because they didn't have any money left or anything like that. There was no drama to it. He just wanted to sort of retire from that business and move on to whatever his next chapter was going to be.
0: That's cool. That's, it's better than knowing You've had enough, you know what I mean? Being able to walk, step and walk away as opposed to. Sure. Cause
1: cause cause I yelled at him a lot about it. (laughs) I was like, ah, stop it, Frank. You know, but no, he, you know he's he's happier now.
0: Um, Harvey, man, I really appreciate your time. We've been chatting for a minute, and I've been really enjoying this conversation. Um, well, were... I've enjoyed
1: hanging out too. I just have no idea what you're going to turn this thing into.
0: Well, it's a it's a podcast, so. But uh, I wanted to ask you one more thing, and like I meant to bring this up earlier, and I guess kind of talking about the box set. So Peter would hang out with you guys in early Tin Huey rehearsals. Can you kind of tell me? Yeah, what you, you know. Could... It,
1: it's like when we were at the beach land um, and I asked Stella, I mean, you know, Charlotte, you know, try to remember things properly. Because I remember, well, I know that Peter used to hang out in the basement when Tin Huey was rehearsing because um, he was a big fan. And obviously there was a certain connectivity uh, when he was doing his one band Cinderella with, with our friends Debbie and Sue. Um, but I also remember going to dinner, having dinner. I don't even know whether we were going out to dinner or did that and had dinner over at my house. I don't remember, but I just remember, you know, a certain amount of socializing with, with Peter and Stella and, um, and then going to, uh, the Stooges show where they were opening for Slade, uh, together and, uh, um. so I was trying to place it. And yes, I guess, for, as she said, for a few months, they were living in Akron. Um, and that was, yeah, so that was, that was pretty much the sum total there. Um, I imagine if somebody were to tell me that there were a couple times when Peter was down in the basement that we'd start doing a Velvet Underground tune or something and Peter would grab a guitar and play with us. I don't remember that, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised by that. Um, cause he was pretty, pretty busy of a human, yeah. <laughs> pretty yeah. kinetic, you know? Okay. Um, but that's, that's pretty much the, 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 the sum total of it. I mean, I, I've told the story about, you know, at the Stooges show, uh, turning around and throwing a punch and realizing that I had just punched Peter <laughs> down into his seat. But, um, that was, that was almost like the whole story right there, you know, because the Stooges only played for about 20 minutes because yeah. Yeah. Iggy was really late getting onto the stage and he was filled with two and alls. He had a, well, he had, the Stooges had played, this was in the winter, I think it was in I don't know, January, but the Stooges had played the Fillmore with the New York Dolls and Iggy at one point had slipped and fallen backwards and it kind of, cracked his skull and he also had a bad tooth, a really bad tooth. Um, I didn't learn this till later, um, because the next day he went from Cleveland to Ann Arbor and his dad picked him up and took him to the dentist. Um but um he had arrived in Cleveland and had just done a whole bunch of two and alls and went to bed. And wasn't waking up and they had to do that, you know, lovely cinematic. We have to get the hotel detective with a master key to go into the room. And they dragged him out of bed and threw him under the shower and dressed him and brought him to the show. Um, and that was very apparent. He was pretty, he was pretty messed up, but, uh, especially when he was hanging from the microphone stand saying, I am the world's greatest dancer. Um, <laughs> But because of curfews and so forth, the Stooges, you know, and I've been, you know, it's almost like you wait your whole life to see the two Ashton brothers and uh, and Iggy and uh, James Williamson. And they played like 20 minutes, and then they shut the power off on them so that Slade could come out. And I was not a Slade fan. And all I I heard, we were also... Some of us were really drunk and uh, because there had been a bottle of whiskey on the way up and I heard a voice behind me and I thought it said, I mean, I'm sure he said that sucks, but I was under the impression he was saying that the Stooges sucked. So I turned and threw a punch and um, it turns out that it was Peter sitting behind me who also thought that it really sucked that they only played 20 minutes. So that was pretty funny. That was funny. Everybody was fine. He went on memorably to go to the David, you know, the Iggy Pop um, post-show party and meet all these incredible people. And I, I got myself, you know, shoveled back into a car and taken home,
0: so. That's, that's, that's wild, man.
1: Yeah, it was fun. Stooges were great. Yeah,
0: well, that's, that's it. It's the, it is a bummer it was only 20 minutes, but man, I guess moving up to the insanity, it was right there. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. But man, I really appreciate this, you taking time to chat with me, and like, I've always looked up to you and Chris, and so this has been very cool. Um, so thank you, man. Thank you,
1: man. It was great fun. It was, it was fun, uh, hanging out for, oh, holy shit. Hanging out for a couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I just looked at the clock. Um, I probably, I'm probably going to have to go pee now. They, we made it. We made it. <laughs> we did. We did. Um, so thanks. And let me know when it's going up.
0: Yo, Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig at the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you,
1: Space Cowboy. Bang.